from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Good afternoon. You're in for a treat. Bob Woodward doesn't just write for the Washington Post. To those of us who know, and know him and know of him, he is the Washington Post. I'm proud to say that for a brief time in the 1980s, he was my editor on the Metropolitan Desk at the Post. He only edited one story I ever did, and I got sued for $30 million. <laughs> His name was Chief Trussell, and I'm, gl I'm glad to say that we won that case. Bob Woodward has won every, nearly every American Journalism Award you can have. Some of them aren't worth having, but he's got some of the good ones. Bob Schieffer said of him at CBS News, Woodward has established himself as the best reporter of our time. He may be the best reporter of all time. He's disarmingly polite. If he asks you a question, don't answer it. You, you'll find yourself telling him everything you know and everything your mother-in-law knows. He's co-authored about a dozen books, and he's been number one best-selling non-fiction writer for quite a while. His newest work is The Price of Politics, an examination of how President Obama and the high-profile Republican and Democratic leaders in Congress clashed over the American economy, a clash that's still affecting us to this very day. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Woodward. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. I'm going to put myself on the clock so I don't talk too long, and then we g have lots of times uh, for questions. And I want to begin by recounting uh, something that occurred about uh, five or six years ago. My wife and I were at one of these conferences, and the conference was on aging and how to deal with aging. Now, how many people are interested in the subject of aging? Raise your hand. Okay, you know, you all are, I tell you. And uh, at age 69, I'm deeply interested in the subject of aging. And they had psychiatrists and physicians and academics on this panel. And James Watson, who is the co-discoverer of DNA, the, uh, 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 the uh, Nobel Prize winner was also on the panel. And so they had the discussion and it went on for an hour and Watson said nothing. Said at the end, uh, zero comments. Now you know the power of silence was just overwhelming and so finally the moderator, Charlie Rose, asked him, so Dr. Watson, you've done so much work, uh, how do you deal with aging? And so he leaned into the microphone and he said there's only one way to deal with aging, and that is stay away from old people. <laughs> he nailed it. We, uh, my wife, Elsa, and I were sitting behind Dr. Henry Kissinger, uh, who was in the audience, and uh, they handed out these little sheets where you did uh, self-scoring and on your lifestyle. How, how often do you eat red meat? How, how many bowel movements do you have a week? Uh, general health questions, and then you got points or lost points and you added it up 
and uh, it told you how many years you had to live. Now, how many people here want to know how many years uh, you have to live? The skeptical as you might uh, rightly be about this scoring sheet, it's, it's very interesting. And Kissinger was filling this out with all the intensity hunched over and uh, so Elsa and I availed ourselves of the Reporters Freedom of Information Act <laughs> and looked over his shoulder to see how many years he had to live. He added it all up and it turned out he died four years ago. <laughs> Not happy. I've seen Kissinger really unhappy because of things we'd written, but this was the depth of unhappiness. And so he looked around, and uh, this was done in pencil, and he erased all the answers and rescored. Went through, and turns out the last time he ate red meat was 1949. How often do you exercise a week? Seven, eight, nine. 10 times a week. And he rescored, and it turned out he had eight years to live. Now, what's the lesson here? That, I mean, Kissinger is the master of this. Read his books, listen to him. He rescores history like no one else. <laughs> but it is the basic problem in journalism, in trying to understand politics, trying to understand what's going on in the world. And uh, I was telling the story the other night about Al Gore having dinner with him, sitting next to him. Now, having dinner sitting next to Al Gore is taxing. <laughs> and, and as I say, it's really unpleasant. <laughs> Asked him, how much do we know about what really goes on in the White House, the Clinton White House? And he said, 1%. Low. Uh, I believe it's higher, but uh, if you really kind of step back, we often don't know what's going on, and that's the dilemma. And I want to talk briefly and then answer questions about the a new book I've done, which is just out called The Price of Politics. It's about uh, three and a half years of negotiations uh, between the Obama White House and the Republicans in Congress and the Democrats, uh, how they essentially tried to bring the federal government's uh, financial house into some kind of order. Now, the answer is they failed. Uh, we have a federal government uh, whose financial house is in total disorder, total disarray. It is a, a historic problem. I've covered these three and a half years, but we're going to be back in the soup in about four or five months because uh, to try to put it in English, we have $16 trillion of IOUs standing, outstanding in the world. And the negotiations last year, they agreed to raise what they called the debt ceiling so the government can borrow a couple more trillion dollars. We're going to run out of that borrowing authority January or February of next year, and so they're going to have to go back and get Congress to authorize more trillions of dollars of borrowing. 
As you know, the Republicans and lots of people in Congress don't want to authorize that. And so there is going to be a bloody negotiation unless they can work a deal. So in a sense, this is a book about the past, but it's about the present. It's about where uh, we're going and kind of what the country's future is. And if you think about it, I would argue that it, the inability of the government to fix this borrowing debt deficit issues, the number one problem facing the country. Uh, in the book, uh, Vice President Biden's chief of staff, Bruce Reed, runs around and says it was an economic Cuban missile crisis in 2011. That's exactly what it's going to be uh, next year. And uh, there is so much evidence that it's the biggest threat to the future of the country. It's something that has to be fixed. We are on the path to um, becoming Europe and Greece. You just can't keep borrowing money. There is a spending addiction in this country and we need some sort of uh, intervention, serious intervention. And uh, in the book, what I attempt to do is take people to the meetings in the White House Congress or the meetings uh, between the president and the leaders and, and show you exactly what happens. And I, because of the luxury of time and the generosity of the Washington Post and my publisher, Simon & Schuster, I had the time to get the meeting notes, to get the exact detail to interview President Obama at length all, and Speaker Boehner and the, the key players in this. And I just want to take one quick snapshot from what happened that we didn't know about, which is critical. And uh, when the talks blew up last summer and the President was quite angry, quite upset, he called the congressional leaders to the White House over here Saturday morning, 11 o'clock, both the Democrats and the Republicans said, we have to work out something. And the Democratic and Republican leaders were trying to work out their own deal. And uh, Harry Reid, the Democratic leader, said to the President, Mr. President, could you please leave the room? Now, I've covered presidents for 40 years. I know of no other time anybody asked the president to leave the meeting in his own house that he had called. Uh, I asked the president about this, said, how did it feel to be voted off the island in your own house? Because that's what happened. And uh, he said he was not going to stand on protocol that the problem needed to be solved. Uh, but it wasn't, and the next day, he called the Democratic leaders to the White House, 6 o'clock on a Sunday night, and Harry Reid is there, Nancy Pelosi, the House leader, and the relations between, among the Democrats, are so uh, not solved that Harry Reid has his chief of staff, a man named David Crone, make a presentation on the deal that Reid is trying to work out with the Republicans. And in the course of doing that, 
David Crone says to the President of the United States in the Oval Office, in his own house, I am disappointed in this White House and you for not having a fallback plan. Literally, again, somebody reading out the President in the Oval Office for not having a plan. After the meeting, Harry Reid said to his Chief of Staff, you did a good job, quote, you stood up to him, he needed to hear it, no one was telling him. Now, think about it for a moment. Why does the second most powerful Democrat in Washington have to use his Chief of Staff as a lever to send a message to the President of the United States? Uh, I was talking, to, being interviewed by somebody from Amazon.com uh, the other day, and as you may know, they take books and they divide them in red state, blue state. Are most of the books selling in red states, Republican states, or blue states, Democratic states? And I, I said, w uh, where does this book fall? Which is it? And he said, well, it's purple. <laughs> because it has... Uh, information uh, about both sides in all of this and it, it shows uh, that there is a war going on not just in the Democratic Party but the Republican Party perhaps much more intense. There are scenes where John Boehner is trying to work a deal with the President to do tax reform and entitlement reform and his deputy Eric Cantor, the majority leader, calls people like Paul Ryan who's now running for vice president with Governor Romney, calls Ryan and some of uh, the other key Republicans, and they say, my God, we've got a speaker who's doing deals with the president. The speaker is a runaway horse. How do we get control of him? Speaker Boehner told me that his staff was so worried that he came, the staff members came to see him in his office, the second floor, of the Capitol and said, you have got to stop trying to do a deal with the President. If you do keep doing this, you are going to risk your speakership. Um, the President said, when I talked to him, interestingly enough, he said in fixing, he realizes the magnitude of all of this, as do, does Speaker Boehner key Democrats, key Republicans realize what it is. And the President literally said to me, I w would willingly lose an election if I could solve these problems. It is that serious. Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary in the book, is quoted thousands of words telling the President, you have got to do something about this problem. We have to fix it. Uh, you literally it's not that we're going to close down the government. We will close down the American economy and, in turn, the global economy. If they do not solve the issue of this runaway spending, get some way to stop borrowing uh, in excess, uh, he tells the President of the United States, if we default on this, on our obligations to our I in our IOUs, we will trigger a depression worse than the 1930s. Anybody here remember the 1930s depression? Uh, you probably don't, I don't, was uh, not born, but I've read about it. It was a calamity 
for the world. Uh, Tim Geithner said to the president, what um, if we default on this, if we do not solve this problem, we will have an economic catastrophe that will make the 2008 financial crisis a footnote in the history books. Anyone remember the 2008 financial crisis? That's coming uh, not from some columnist or journalist. That is coming from uh, the well-informed uh, Secretary of the Treasury. You think about this, there is a value in uh, running scared. Uh, if you think about after 9-11, the terrorist attacks, one thing the country did uh, collectively is they set up TSA, uh, the screening at airports. There are all kinds of uh, uh, work, very significant work done to make sure terrorists did not get into this country. It's been successful to date. It is one of uh, an amazing achievement. If, if you think about September 12, 2001, the day after 9-11, it was almost a certainty there were going to be terrorist attacks in this country. Uh, there have not been you know, hundreds of billions of dollars has been thrown at it, all kinds of intelligence efforts, screening efforts, thinking efforts, uh, some of them perhaps extreme, but it worked. This was a time when the government and its leaders in both parties ran scared. Uh, they are not running scared on this issue. And if you look at it, it is the thing we know about that is going to do us in. And we've got to fix it. And uh, go for a moment to the presidential campaign uh, going on before us. Uh, what are they talking about? Not this. Not the thing that's most evident. Why are they not talking about it? I would say part of it's the responsibility of people in my business, the media. The candidates are not being asked about it enough. It's also complicated. Um, it's also um, something the candidates, if you look at what they have said on this issue, uh, both Obama and Romney's plans are vague. If I were moderating the debate uh, that is coming October 3rd, I would spend about half of it asking them, what would you do specifically? Give us the diagnosis of the plan and tell us what you're really going to do. And part of that question is there has to be a willingness to compromise and there has to be a, a, an innate willingness to do things that are painful uh, for your side. I'm going to stop there and we'll, we'll do questions. One more story. I remember years ago, the uh, head of Simon & Schuster, after I had published one of my books, took me to dinner in New York City at one of these restaurants where you would never want to go where uh, you have to pay. And he said, what's your next book going to be about? And I said, oh, well, I, w I haven't decided. I want to do some thinking, some reading, some research, research. And he looked at me and said, what? I said, yeah, I want to do thinking, reading, reporting, uh, weighing uh, the alternatives. And he said, why are you going to waste your time? I said, well, that's what uh, you tried to do. And he said, no, no, no. 
You are one of our authors. I need to know right now, tonight, what your next book is going to be. I said, this is, that's preposterous. He said, I need to know. Now, he's one of these people who grinds on you in your dinner alone. No matter what would come up, he would bring the subject back to, oh, maybe you should do a book about that. What about this? And he would just grind away. Uh, you may know people like this. <laughs> you may work for somebody like that. Even better, you may be married to somebody <laughs> like that who just grinds away, so he wouldn't let up. So finally at the end, I said to him, I figured out what my next book is going to be. He said, oh, that's great. What? I said, my next book will be an expose of the publishing business in New York City. <laughs> and instead of showing disappointment, he, was, he said, that's a terrific idea. I have a great title for you. I said, I don't think there are any great titles left. He said, there's one. I said, what? He said, your book, an expose on the publishing business in New York City would be called My Last Book. <laughs> and he meant it. Okay. Questions? Open microphone. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi, Bob. I want to ask you something that's alluding to the off-the-line comment you said on, on Al Gore. Uh, you know that you've been studying the White House 40 years, and you know people all have their own perspective. They're all, they all want to be saying things. And if you're the president, you have to listen to all these people. Over your 40 years, how did the presidents react? And which ones really did a good job listening and making decisions? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, in uh, journalism, uh, the great art, and it's, it's hard, is to really listen. And the key to getting people to talk is to take them as seriously as they take themselves. That's one common feature. Every Presidents, every, most people in government, they take themselves seriously. Um, you find increasingly with all the presidents I've tried to understand that the more time they get in office, the more they like to talk and the less they like to listen. And that's a problem. And uh, I, I was reading uh, the George Kennan uh, biography, one of the great books. That he's the diplomat who uh, really estab established the containment policy. And at one point, Kennan writes in his diary when they've made him ambassador to Yugoslavia, he says, there is a treacherous curtain of deference that falls on you is the boss. Happens to everyone, but it happens 10 times to presidents. That treacherous curtain of deference, and everyone is, oh, Mr. President, Mr. President. And uh, what a president, like any leader, needs is somebody who will tell him the truth. Here. This uh, upcoming uh, election is in before the, the uh, inauguration has been described as a period of time that's going to be the lame duck session of all lame ducks. And I wanted to ask you the qu same question that you would ask the candidates, which would be something like, we're, about, we're approaching a fiscal cliff, and this is all going to happen uh, shortly after or, or, or just prior to the inauguration or some time in January. What what is the what what do you see or what okay. do you predict or what needs to be done to to avoid this fiscal okay. cliff? 
um, happily, I don't have to decide, and uh, I don't know. But there, I mean, the fiscal cliff is a euphemism. I mean, fiscal—it's—it's it's financial. It's the basic fi financial soundness of the government, which connects, believe me, to the value of everything you have—a house, a bank account, an investment, and so forth—and it is all in jeopardy. It should be called the financial time bomb. And it's tax increases, it's spending cuts, but it's also what uh, I spend a lot of time in the price of politics writing about where you have to extend the debt ceiling. They, the, the White House, whoever is there, is going to have to go to the Congress and say, gee, you know what, we're borrowing a trillion dollars. I mean, think about, I was trying to figure, somebody was asking, well, how much is a trillion dollars? That's about $3,000 for everyone in the United States. That's a lot of money. They have to borrow that next year just to pay for what's going on. And how they're going to do that, how they arrange it, I don't know. It, um, it's it's going to be... Uh, you know, I may have my second book. Go yeah. ahead. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, in your interviews and in your research, I was wondering how much you came across the discussions among the leadership about dealing with the, the serious problem of jobs in this country, because we're in a second major depression, many say, uh, since the great, and it's sort of contrary or contradictory uh, to be concerned about the budget deficit, where you'd be taking steps that have a negative effect on the economy. So how much did that take a pl uh, effect in okay, the, the discussion? Excellent question. And uh, of course, you create jobs by growing the economy. And you have to not only grow the economy, you need to stabilize it. You can't have this situation we're in where the interest rates are right in the basement. And uh, as someone says, you can't jump out of the basement. Uh, that's as low as it is. And if people stop trusting, U.S. Treasury is the $16 trillion of debt we have out there. Uh, interest rates are going to skyrocket. Interest payments will go up annually, potentially by hundreds of billions of dollars. Then we would have more deficit. There would be less trust. And so you haven't, you've, you've wrecked the government's role in the economy. Uh, those are my secret notes. I'm going to pick them up. So you have to stabilize that and then, and you have to figure out a way to get the economy to grow. And that's a long-term proposition which will lead to more jobs. But you're right, there's some contradictions in all of this. But in trying to create more jobs, you can't mess up with the overall problem of the trustworthiness and credit, creditworthiness. You're shaking your head. Uh, we'll talk afterwards. Next. Um, hi. Um, over the course of your career, you've had the most incredible access to all these um, great politicians in history and e even today. And I was just wondering, out of everyone you've met, who surprised you the most? Who is like the least like how they are perceived in history and in the current media? Oh, wow. Uh, the, that's like asking the question about the creation of the universe. Um, <laughs> They're all interesting. They all have their, um, it, I mean, I, I just get fascinated with the story of government and what really works and, quite frankly, what we don't know, what is 
uh, hidden. Um, I remember for a book I did called The Agenda on Bill Clinton, uh, and uh, it was about his economic plan. I interviewed him once, and it was on background, but he's talked about it, so I have talked about it. And you go into the Oval Office, and this, so this was early 1994, and Clinton dri drills you with this eye contact that is absolutely a gravitational force. I've never seen anyone maintain eye contact like Bill Clinton. And, uh, to a, and it's unblinking, and he just stares, and of course it, it, it creates a sense of intimacy, it slows time down, and I remember thinking, this eye contact is amazing, and somebody later suggested to me, said, well, he wanted to be president ever since he was five and he decided to contribute all organs in the body to the task. <laughs> including the eyes. And it's, you can train yourself, you just don't blink. And uh, so we're going through this and I thought, oh, wow, this is a great interview and, uh, and he, he's so focused. I even started thinking, oh, he realizes how brilliant my questions are. <laughs> Which they weren't. And I thought, left this and thought, oh, there's this, you know, there's this uh, amazing interview. And I went back and uh, had somebody transcribe it. And I read the transcript without the eye contact. And it was mush. He didn't say anything new. He didn't say anything that was particularly useful. I think I used one sentence in the whole book from the interview. But, and here's the essence of the Clinton communication style, it felt good. <laughs> it felt wonderful. And uh, if you look at the Reagan tapes, uh, when he was president, everyone called him the great communicator. He's, he's a nothing compared to Clinton. Clinton, I remember interviewing, uh, uh, there, were, there was one meeting where about six or seven people were uh, in the meeting with Clinton, and I asked them each what happened, and there was this one woman who didn't say anything. And I said, what'd you think of the meeting? And she said, I know he agrees with me. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's, I mean, if you can go, uh, anyway. End of, end of. My question is a, a little bit simple. It seems to me that where we're at right now is almost at the end of the current monetary system. So my question is, how much talk has there been in your circles about ending the current monetary system, stopping the issuing of money at debt, and perhaps going to a United States note instead of Federal Reserve notes? Well, that's a, that's a technical economic issue. I mean, you can't bail out on the $16 trillion in IOUs we have. You just can't. It won't. It would. It's, it would be the disaster and the calamity. Uh, I don't think. I don't think you can do this with ma a magic wand. I don't think. The, I think the. If you go back to uh, the 1980s, what Reagan and Tip O'Neill did to save Social Security, they worked a deal where payroll tax went up, the most regressive tax in the history of this country, and they agreed to cut back on some benefits. And part of the deal was 
What's that noise? Is Gordon Liddy out there somewhere? You're, you're too young to remember Gordon Liddy. O'Neill and Reagan, part of the deal was we're raising the tax, we're cutting some benefits, and so O'Neill says to Reagan, look, you go out and say whatever you want about what this deal is, and I won't contradict you. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to say, describe the deal the way I want it described, and don't you contradict me. Deal made, it's gone. No one, no one objected. It was voted through the Congress. People who ran, I, I know a couple of senators who ran, I think first in 1984, like John Kerry. He said in his campaign, the issue never came up because there was no clash. There was no conflict. Part of the deal was, I mean, uh, look, Obama and Speaker Boehner would have a much harder time making a deal and because they had problems in both of their parties, as they say. But in talking about this with them, if they'd had, uh, what's the word, uh, courage to say, let's make a deal and go out and get before the microphones and the cameras and say, this is what it's going to be and this is going to be painful and we're going to ask all... Democrats and Republicans to vote for it because we have to protect our financial future because that's what it's about at the end. Uh, they essentially told me they thought it would work, that they could have done it. And, of course, they did not. Yes. Bob, that's a good lead into my question. That gr the grand bargain that came to the fore towards the end, um, the president put entitlements on the table. I don't recall the world unraveling from that notion how real do you suppose that proposal was, and are we likely to revisit that in the well, spring? Well, it, it gets into detail, and I have, I have a whole chapter on this, and it has to do with uh, six senators saying, gee, we can a ask for more revenue. It included three more Republicans. David Pluff, who's the president's uh, political advisor, campaign manager in 2008, has tremendous influence in the Obama White House. Uh, am I pointing the right direction? Is the White House that way? Yes, okay. Uh, and uh, he said, we've got to do something. We have to ask for more revenue. And one of uh, Clinton's, uh, one of Obama's other advisors came in and said, if you don't ask for more revenue, you will be part of the presidency, the weakest presidency in the history of mankind. I mean, imagine being in that situation, getting that advice from one of your aides. So the president picked up the phone and said, we need more revenue. Uh, he insists it was an offer. Speaker Boehner is equally insistent that it was a demand. I talked to him, talked to all the people now. No one else was in the room. There's no secret tape recording of that phone conversation I know about. If anyone does, please give me a call. <laughs> but why do that on the phone? You shouldn't do that on the phone. You should have other people there so it's carefully, you know, I mean, it was changing or making a proposal at the end that set this off on a track. It is a very dramatic story and it brings to the fore the issues that we're going to be 
dealing with in three or four months? Yes. You may have already alluded to this somewhat uh, in answering a previous question, but you know, congressional approval is at record lows, and, and people left, right, center, everywhere talk about how broken government is. And what are those things, that, from your perspective, that have broken it? And what are those things that, if they were removed, either individual or structural, um, that would help fix it? What's the path forward? You know, th that's above my pay grade. Uh, it, it, it's it's, uh, it's a, enough of a task to try to find out what happened and so forth, and to, uh, you do play in your own mind what should have happened, what could have happened. I mean, it's it's a pattern. It's It's gone, uh, gone on a, a long time. A, a lot of people in their books on this, there's analysis saying it's all the Republicans' fault. Uh, their books and there's analysis that it's all the Democrats' fault, it's all Obama's fault. I, uh, I'm purple on that question and in the book uh, conclude that uh, they both have responsibility for this. And it's, it's a shame it's not part of the, electro the dialogue going on in the election. We're going to pay a price for this and just, you know, uh, Note on your BlackBerry that we talked about this uh, September 23rd, and when the bridges start burning uh, in four or five months, uh, if, if there, I, I was saying this to somebody, if you remember 9-11, uh, uh, in August of 2001, six weeks before 9-11, there was a top secret intelligence briefing given to President George W. Bush. And the headline of that top secret briefing was, and we ran it uh, in the Washington Post uh, after it became a big issue, was Bin Laden determined to strike in US. Now think about that. You're the President of the United States. You get a top secret report saying Bin Laden determined to strike in the US. You should do something. Well, we know. Uh, not enough was done. We know that the government across the board failed to uh, do what was necessary on potential terrorism, and we had 9-11. I tell you, the theme song, the big music in this book I've, tr I've, I've written that I've tried to present is U.S. economy about to falter. And it's a warning. And uh, it, um, it, it's, so it's disappointing, and to be honest with you, it's agonizing that it can't get into the dialogue because we have a presidential election six weeks ago, uh, six weeks uh, from now, uh, in which whoever, whether it's Obama, Romney, they're going to have to sit there, and this is what they're going to be spending their time on. Yes, young man. Hi, um, I just, oh, 13, yes. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say, first of all, that I am right in the middle of The Price of Politics. I am in the middle of Chapter 20, so it's an incredible book. So thank you very much for writing it. Um, my question- I know lots of adults who can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So um, my question is, um, I'm at the end of middle school, and I want to become a journalist when I grow up, so you okay. <laughs> so you've had an incredible 
career and you're one of my idols, so I just wanted to ask you um, any tips for young people like me who want to become a journalist and want to see the world? Uh, you, you've chosen, perhaps prematurely, <laughs> a, a great career. Uh, I've often said if somebody came from another planet to the United States and spent a year and then went back to, say, Mars, and they said, who are the people who have the best jobs in America? Uh, the interplanetary visitor would say, oh, the journalists. Why? Because as a journalist, you get to make momentary entries into people's lives when they're interesting and when they're boring, get out. <laughs> There's no other profession where you, if you're a lawyer, you're stuck with clients, it may be boring. If you're a doctor, you're stuck with patients, it may be routine. In journalism, the question every morning when you go to work or whenever it is, what's going on, what's going on that has meaning, and what don't we know about it? And so if you think about it, um, good luck. Let me know when you're looking for a job. What's interesting, he's, he's telling the, the book is 40 chapters long, and he says he's halfway through on chapter 20. Uh, I'll challenge you. As a nurse practitioner, you get to be involved with people at the most important times of their life. I love that job, too. But well, 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 well said. Well said. But my question is, uh, as, uh, is about the Freedom of Information Act. And small-time people like me can't get the same information you can. So for example, I represent my little citizen association, and I asked Arlington County for some information on where they're spending money in a certain area. And they would charge me $850 to get that. And another time I asked, they said, well, it would be about three, three or 4,000 pages of, or boxes, not pages, boxes of stuff that you'd have to go through. How, as a small-time person who already has a full-time job, how do we work with the Freedom of Information Act to get the information we want. Okay, somebody from uh, the Library of Congress, Dr. Billington, was asking me, in the movie version of All the President's Men, uh, the reporters go to the Library of Congress to look at what the white books the White House has been checking out, and somebody said, gee, can you go to the Library of Congress and find out what other people have been checking out, and your horror, of, of course, no. But how did we get somebody? We went to somebody, and it's in the movie, and we said, sorry, Dr. Billington, how about breaking the rules? How about helping us? We're not going to misuse this information. Go to the people who have those documents and say, look, um, why don't you uh, help me? Give them to me. You've got them here. I'll get them Xeroxed or something like that. And an, an appeal, it's amazing. I, I, in fact, think that everyone is a, in the United States is a secret sharer, believer in the First Amendment, and appeal to conscience. If you can't get them to help you, call me, and I'll call them on your behalf, okay? <laughs> I did.
I'm sorry that we uh, don't the, have the, time. My email, I, the email is woodwardb at washpost.com. If anybody else has any other good information, oh, don't hesitate to. Last question, right? No. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm over time. My God. That's, yes, quick. One Hi, last Ms. question. Hi, Mr. Woodward, Sarong Shah, big fan of your work. Uh, unlike the young man who just came before me, I still haven't had a chance to read your book, but I look forward to. But it seems like a theme throughout this book is this sort of both sides do it, color purple, bipartisan thing. Now, of course, politics is very much about having two different sides with, uh, admittedly, you know, different views of America and different policy solutions, going out into public, presenting their views, and then having the public decide through elections or through civil discourse what policy direction they want to take. So I'm interested in terms of the sort of access you've gotten to Democratic and Republican leadership and your view of the debt ceiling debacle whether you found that one side or another side was more intransigent or much more stubborn to negotiation or concessions than the other side. Uh, that's a great question, and I, I do put responsibilities on both sides, but I do say at the end that if you look at Presidents Reagan, Presidents Clinton, criticize them as you might in lots of areas, by and large on important national business, they worked their will, they found a way. And uh, in this case, Obama did not find a way. The leader of this country is the president. And if things go well or not well, it's going to be that these things happened in the Obama era, not the John Boehner era. And presidents have to lead, and presidents have to learn how. And in this case, we got up to the goal line. He didn't take it over. Uh, the end, the finish line here. And so and, and we, we live in a country with those where the maximum burden is on the president. But if you, when you, if you look at the book, you will see that dealing with the Republicans is not really an easy thing. And as I left the Oval Office, uh, President Obama said, you know, if Bob Dole or Newt Gingrich had been here, I would have been able to work a deal. Thanks so much. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.